Thought Leadership from PwC. Welcome to PwC's Accounting Podcast. I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for joining me as we continue our Tuesday series in which one of our all-star podcast guests takes over the podcast, picking the topics of the month, and joining me on all the episodes. For the month of May, our takeover guest is Jennifer Spang, the income tax accounting leader in PwC's national office. So no surprise, this month, Jen's taking over the podcast to share the latest on income tax accounting. This is your opportunity to influence the direction of the project. The FASB is looking for comments, and so I encourage companies to share their point of view. That was Jen. Back to take a deep dive on the FASB's recent exposure draft on income tax disclosures. With two major new disclosures proposed related to the rate reconciliation and cash taxes paid by jurisdictions, there are many complexities, and Jen shares what she's hearing from companies and the FASB as they work through the proposal. One of our points, what should companies do now to share their views with the FASB and plan ahead? Listen in for Jen's advice. Jen, welcome back to the podcast. So nice to have you here for our second week in your tax series. And in particular, I know this is something that is top of mind for many, many companies, which is the FASB's Income Tax Disclosure Project. Lots of different aspects to think about. But maybe before we get into the details, it would be helpful just to kick things off with a quick recap of the history and then sort of where we are now. Yeah, I think importantly, if this is a project that you've followed for a number of years, the headline is, it's a different project today, right? So this project has been going on since about 2014. But the original project was really about testing, um, at the time, a draft or an exposure draft around um, the concept statements. And so that concept statement has since been finalized, I think, isn't it? Maybe concept statement eight. Um so that's been, you know, long been finalized at this point. So uh, income taxes was one of the areas that was slated um, to test that, you know, those concepts. Um, but if you fast forward today, it hit a number of delays, um, including the election, um, including TCGA that came shortly thereafter, and then um COVID, of course, um, and all that happened around that. And so when you fast forward to today, really last year, so in 2022, um, the FASB really shifted gears, I would say, um, and narrowed significantly the project. So I guess we started back in March of last year. They narrowed the project. They began their outreach meetings. There were a number of decision-making meetings until ultimately the FASB in November made the decision to move forward with an exposure draft uh, that they then released in um, March of this year. So Jen, often when we say something's been narrowed, then it kind of means, ah, it's narrow, don't need to pay as much attention. Clearly, that's not the case here. So maybe big picture what was in the exposure draft. And then also, I guess I will just put in a plug here right now is that we are releasing this before the comment period ends on May 30th. And we always give a pitch that even if you don't want to comment on everything, definitely, if you have views on this, uh, 
submit your comment letters to the FASB. So I'll say that. I'm sure you would echo it, but what, what is it that they would be commenting on? Yeah, so definitely echo that. Um, so it narrowed. You were right. Narrowed, though, didn't mean that it got easy. So the project, the exposure draft, I should say, is really focused on two areas. So disaggregation of cash taxes paid and then incremental improvements to the rate reconciliation. So really, the board have talked about on their their public meetings how integral those two things are, how they work together um, from being able to garner information about a company's profile. And so in the income taxes paid area, the exposure draft proposed to uh, require disaggregation of cash taxes paid on an interim and an annual basis by federal, state, and foreign. And then on an annual basis, there would be an incremental disclosure um, that would be based upon 5% of cash taxes paid. You disclose any jurisdiction that's greater than 5% of cash taxes paid. Now, importantly here, cash taxes paid in that is net of refunds. So it's going to be a lower number to the extent you've got significant refunds. Um, So that would be cash taxes paid. Then on the incremental improvements to the rate reconciliation, they're really, I would argue, I I guess I would summarize it as they're in two areas. The introduction of eight mandatory categories, so state and local income taxes, foreign tax effects, the enactment of new tax laws, the effect of cross-border tax laws, tax credits, valuation allowances, non-taxable or non-deductible items, and then changes in unrecognized tax benefits. So those are eight mandatory categories. Now, some of those categories have to be then further disaggregated. So when you look at foreign tax effects, that needs to be disaggregated by both jurisdiction and nature. And then when you look at cross-border tax laws, the tax credits, and um, the non-taxable or non-deductible items, those need to be disaggregated by nature. Now, the key there is what does disaggregated, how do you get there? That is really based upon the 5% rule that at least SEC registrants um, will be very familiar with. It's really just you take 5% essentially of your applicable statutory rate. So that's generally going to be your domestic rate. So if you're a U.S. company, it's 21%, um, 5% of 21. So in the U.S., it gets you just over to 1%. So if I go back to that foreign tax effects line, you're going to disclose jurisdictions that are over that 1%. Um, you know, I think it's 1.05. And then same thing on nature, on those nature items, you're going to have to disaggregate that. Now, a couple other points worth mentioning, I think, um, when you look at uh, in the rate reconciliation, when you look at the state line, that's all state effects. This has been a big question for a number of years. So meaning any state tax effects are going to be on the state tax line. So valuation allowance, uncertain tax positions, related to state that's all on the state line. Same thing with the foreign tax effects. In the foreign tax effects line, it's all foreign tax effects. So uncertain tax positions, valuation allowances, they're all there, which means all of the other line items are based on your domestic lens. So again, from a U.S. company, if I'm looking at what is a cross-border tax effect, that's through a U.S. tax law lens. Or if I'm looking at um, a tax credit, line that is through a U.S. tax lens. Um, All of my foreign effects will be in the foreign line. Wow. So definitely a huge amount of additional data that companies are going to be 
required to disclose. And I want to dig in a little bit into some of the questions, but big picture, are you, what reaction are you hearing from companies on this? Yeah. And, and, and I, I'm remiss. I didn't mention private companies. We should talk about that as well, but, um, Overall, probably a concern with regard to the disaggregation. I, I would say that's the biggest, probably in the top three issues that companies have raised. Um, so there's just this idea that could that actually be misleading? Um, so if you think about guilty, you know, we've talked about guilty on this podcast mm-hmm. in the past, but if you think about a big picture, guilty is made up of the, you know, what we call tested income. So there's an income element. It's then got a deduction. It's called under the law, a 250 deduction. So that basically um, reduces the amount of the income you have. And then you've got credits. So when you think about guilty, we might expect that guilty will be on that cross-border tax effects. But what is guilty? Mm -hmm. Is guilty, presumably it's after the 250 deduction. I I think that I I would hope. Uh, But somebody could have said, well, gee, isn't that a non-taxable or non-deductible, right? Do I somehow have to disaggregate that? But let's assume that's not the case. But what about credits? So are you going to show guilty when in fact you don't actually have guilty? Maybe guilty isn't in fact material for the company. So like that concept of how that disaggregation looks is probably, you know, again, it's probably the lead in conversation for every discussion that we've had. All right. So what are some of the other, I'll say questions that you're hearing then? So I think, um, you know, cash taxes paid, there's a concern that just 5% is could produce a pretty long list, particularly 5% yeah. of a net of refunds number. And so just a question of, is that valuable? You know, how will that information be used? Um, and is there sort of a materiality threshold when, if a company were to get to a pretty long list, like, is there some other cutoff when it's got a very specific rule associated with it? Um, how do you think about that in a materiality context? And I think materiality probably is, um, you know, probably one of the overall points is just in general, I mentioned before the eight mandatory categories. So those are not teed up currently in, well, they're not teed up in the exposure draft as there are eight mandatory, there are eight categories if you meet the 5% test, Mm. right? It's just eight categories. And then you apply the 5% test within those, some of the categories. So there's sort of a question of materiality, again, comments around just what a footnote could look like. Um, When you think about a complex company and how that incremental data is going to be helpful to an investor. Well, and Jen, before you go on, something that kind of I tie together that we've talked about quite a lot on the the podcast is the SEC's climate disclosure proposal rule had that 1% threshold. And that is one of the main places that, you know, when we did our review of the comment letters, one of the main places people gave feedback, because I think same sort of reaction of because it was 1% of a financial statement line item. And where is the concept of materiality? And it's sort of interesting, because that was from the SEC, this coming from the FASB, but both of them seem moving away from how we've normally thought about like what's material. So normally, you would do your disclosure and then apply that materiality lens. So anyway, I would just tie that as something where we saw lots and lots of comments on the SEC proposal. Well, and interestingly enough, the basis of conclusion for the exposure draft talks about, so you've got this, I, I don't know if it's a conflict or 
not, but within this, the proposed language for the codification, it just says that you provide these eight categories. But the basis of conclusion does then turn around and make an introduction of, you know, materiality. But companies have looked at that and said, but, but the standard requires this without it. So how do you think about that? And is it left for companies, you know, presumably some level of judgment, but it also puts them in a place of conflict mm-hmm. um, when they're trying to comply with the standard. So yeah, so it, that's interesting. Yeah, so definitely that will be be interesting to see if we see the same sort of comments on on this. What other types of questions then are you seeing? Well, so one of the things I didn't mention, but... Um, and maybe I can hit on privates as well. But one of the things I didn't mention is that today you have a choice between disclosing um, either the dollar amount in your rate reconciliation, either the dollar or the percentage. Uh, The exposure draft does require both. So um, while it's not the biggest comment, um, there has been some sort of question as to why why both are required or um, requested. Yeah, I was going to ask you that question, but I guess well, it will remain to be seen if they discuss it uh, later. Yeah, I mean, some board members did in the public meetings comment that um, you know companies have it readily available, and when they're doing their um, their calculations, they would just prefer that it was provided and um, be available to them so that they don't have to calculate it. So there was some discussion about just, you know, it's there and it's, um, you know, it's not that hard to, it's not that hard to do. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, you know, but yeah, it would be mandatory at that point. I mentioned private a couple of times. Let me hit on that because I I think that is important. So today um, the cash disclosure that I talked about, that is for all entities. So that's private or, um, you know, SEC registrants or not uh, public or non-public business entities. Um, and then, um, for the rate reconciliation, um, non-public business entities are not required to provide a rate reconciliation today, and they won't be required to under this exposure draft either. Um, they will continue to need to provide a qualitative disclosure, but, um, it does talk about in the exposure draft that they do need to talk about, um, that, you know, significant drivers. So it's got language in there that sort of alludes to the categories and things like that. So the, the exposure draft also provides an example, um, you know, for me, when I read it, I, I, it's almost seems harder to write that paragraph when you go down all those places than, um, it is to do a rate reconciliation, <laughs> yeah. but, um, they're not required to do a rate rec. So. And then how about more broadly? So that's helpful for private companies, but more broadly, and I think you you touched on this, but how, it seems like in that rate rec, there's things that could go in, in multiple of those categories. So how do you think about that? Absolutely true. And um, they do talk about it in the basis of conclusion as well. Um, that, And in fact, in the exposure draft, that judgment will be necessary in that. So I think there is a question of what that means. Does that leave room to say, well, if I have a foreign tax credit that goes against another category and I look at the nature, mm. it talks about in the standard sort of the um, the driver of it or the nature of it. So could you somehow consider those things then together? Um, I think that's part of the guilty conversation. Um, but I think it goes broader than that. Um, uncertain tax positions, valuation allowances. If you think um, think about an uncertain tax position, the line item does say changes. But if you think about that for a minute, um, let's imagine you've got a credit of $100. 
And you've only recognized 50 of that Um. as an uncertain tax position. So your financial statements and certainly your footnote will never show something other than 50 in my example. So why would you ever in a disclosure show something other than what you've actually under gap recognized yes. in the standard? So that seems actually more confusing. Right. And so that's, I think the question is, where is the balance between providing additional information so that investors can understand better, particularly the non, let's say the foreign footprint. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and in fact, though, providing that information in a way that is in fact transparent and helpful to investors um, versus misleading if you break it into all of its pieces. So I think judgment necessary on that. So we'll see how the comment letter, you know, what we see for comments during the comment letter period. Yeah, it definitely seems like sometimes having more data actually gives you like less information. So I guess that's sort of a question here. And similarly, a question I have for you, going back to your cash taxes paid, and I can only picture this, this long list, but also uh, like what period is it covering? Cause you said, I think you said it was net of refunds, but those last year's refunds, next year's refunds, how do you do that calculation? Or is that another sort of open? Well, I mean, it's just cash. So it's, it's, it's actually just in the year. So whatever cash taxes paid, net of refunds received in the year. It's like a true cash disclosure. And companies have asked questions. And and frankly, um, the staff looked at this, right? There was a discussion for cash taxes paid. Should we disaggregate it by jurisdiction? Should we disaggregate it by timing? So um, we paid X in cash, you know, uh, X amount in cash, Y was related to the current year, you know, Z was related to a prior year or something along those lines. Because when you think about your cash, you could have cash for the current year payments. Yeah. You could be making an estimate from last year or next year. You might not be making any estimates. Like in in the US, you don't make them in Q1. So as this is quarterly disclosed, you have all of the globe doing it very differently. Um, but also in that cash, you could have an audit settlement. Yes, that's what I was thinking yep. about, or interest, or all like all these pieces. So you'd have a lot of different points, right? So, so, but the but the staff did outreach on uh, disaggregation by jurisdiction, disaggregation by timing. So again, sort of saying what period does that cash payment have to do with, and disaggregation by nature. So think of that as this is an estimated mm-hmm. payment, this is a current tax payment, this is to do with an audit issue, um, like what is the nature? And ultimately they recommended and the board um, exposed by jurisdiction. But the comments that we hear are somewhat along the lines of what you've asked, like, well, how does that relate to the current year? You know, I think this was, again, you know, as the FASBs continue to hear about disaggregation and providing that information, this was their response to that. It's interesting, though, when you think about accrual financial statements, that how these te- the uh, a cash number fits in, again, seems like in some ways that could be confusing, but I guess it remains to be seen. So then, Jen, how about other areas? I know there's some more like other points in there in terms of what companies are required to disclose. So any other ones that you would highlight? Yeah, I mean, there's a few things in here um, that are exposed again, but they come from those prior projects. So I'll hit them really quickly. 
some of it's just codification of what's already required by SEC registrants. So um, the the desegregation of pre-tax income or loss by domestic and foreign. So that's already an SEC rule. Um, also, the the um, disclosure of your tax provision um, between um, current and deferred and you know federal, state, foreign. Um, so that's also already required. So, so it's really just codification. In my mind, no different than codification of the five percent rule, though. Obviously, the five percent rule today isn't on that desegregated, right. you know, that we just talked about. Um, and then there were two bigger removals. Um, they're the only ones. So, one is the requirement that exists today to to disclose. Um, changes that are reasonably possible of happening in your UTBs in the next 12 months. So they actually are proposing to remove that um, requirement. And then the other one has to do with the outside basis area. Uh, Essentially, there are three requirements today in GAAP for disclosures in uh, when you're making it an indefinite reinvestment assertion, so an APB 23 Mm -hmm. assertion. Uh, this would move remove one of them. And that is really just a disclosure of the gross temporary difference. And to be honest, once TCGA came in, that disclosure was not meaningful anymore. Um, and so this has been in the project for a while. And, you know, it seems like a very sensible removal. But I think the important note there is the others are not removed. So the disclosure of the unrecorded, an estimate of the unrecorded deferred tax liability when you're asserting, or the statement that it's not practicable to do so, that is still a requirement. So every time I talk about this, I do tell everybody that one's still there. It's just this gross temporary difference that's that's proposed to be removed. Um, so those are the big ones. And those seem more sort of clean up practical. Is that a fair characterization? I think so. On the on the UTB one, that's one where um, there's a view that um, not a lot of insightful disclosure comes out of that. Yeah. Um, it can oftentimes be boilerplate. And so I think the view, that one's been in the project for a while. And so I think the view was that wasn't providing a lot of very useful information. Um, and apparently investors weren't really using it. So um, that's that one. And then the other one is definitely just a result of TCJ, or, you know, change in tax law back in 2017 for the US. It just made that disclosure in APB 23 not useful. Well, and I guess it's always fair to say when you're commenting, you can comment on things you'd like as well as things that you may not. So if you like these changes, uh, those those are definitely worth mentioning. And then, Jen, uh, the other thing that people are always interested in is effective date. So is this expected to be soon or did they leave it open? So effective date is open. Let's let's talk about what happens next. So comment period, back to the beginning, you're mentioning May 30th, the end of the comment letter period. Um, the FASB has made it very clear that they intend to finalize the standard in 2023. Okay, so soon. I, yeah, so I do expect that we'll see a final standard by the end of the year. Uh, but effective date is open. So they said they'll, of course, revisit that. They'll consider that after they look and get through the comment letter period. Um, you know, I think when you asked about the areas companies are most interested, that's definitely in the top three. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really just making sure that they have enough time to deal with it. Um, I know in our first series, I think it was our first podcast series around the policy side, you, you know, if you think about a standard being finalized in 2023, 2024, we have pillar two coming into effect in many jurisdictions and, you know, more to come. 
so companies are really focused on making sure that they have time to gather this data because you don't keep that disaggregation at that level today. So you're talking about, depending on what your systems are, remapping all of that data, all that goes with that. And so from that perspective, I think companies are just looking to ensure they have enough time to be able to comply and get their systems in line with this additional disaggregation. Well, so Jen, actually, I had jotted down pillar two as a question that I had, just trying to put the pieces together with what you and Pat and I spoke about last week. And what are sort of the big implications, not wanting to revisit our whole pillar two conversation, but anything you'd highlight from sort of a pillar two perspective? In connection with this project? Yeah. I mean, I think the question that everybody's asking is, where is it going to go? Uh, Right. So I shared earlier that, again, let's take it from a U.S. perspective. As we talked about, we're not expecting an income inclusion rule, a top up tax, if you will, um, under U.S. law anytime soon. So when you think about the categories, you have the income inclusion rule, which is like your parent is subject to it and they can look at anything Mm -hmm. underneath it. The backstop rule, though, you can look sideways. So whose lens, where is it going to map to? Um, You know, if you think about a U.S. company, a U.S. company doesn't have IAR. So you have a number of, you know, a number of points. Now, maybe it gets captured in guilty or other things like that. But I think the question people have been asking is, where does it go on the line? And, and, you know, we're a ways off from it. But if you ever did have the under tax um, profits rule kick in, um, profits or payment, depending on how you think, think about it, but um, where would that go? Uh, because in those cases, it can, in some cases, just be an allocation to another entity. Right. So like, where does that map to? Um, so I think th- that has certainly been a question companies have been asking. Well, and it is interesting when you give the context that this project has been going on since 2014. And then all of a sudden, it's it's coming out in exposure draft. And as you said, expected to be finalized right at the same time as this major tax policy change. So it's just, will be interesting to see how those work together. But again, as companies are thinking about commenting, thinking about that big picture will be important as well. That's right. I think it's a good area to comment on. I think the FASB is looking for feedback on that, right? So, um, you know, I, I think it's a good area to think about what makes sense there. And so then one of the things we also spoke about with Pillar 2 was just the vast amount of information and data companies are going to need. Sort of sounds like this is also going to require a huge amount of data, maybe some the same, some different. But as you're talking to companies in a different, in, a, in addition to highlighting you know, the new rules, what are you talking to them about what they need to be doing now in preparation, assuming this is passed, you know, in some form that's generally the same as what we see in the exposure draft. Yeah. So it's almost, I use the word modeling though, in a very different context than what we talked about with pillar two. But if you basically, and companies are definitely doing this as they think through their reactions or responses to the exposure draft, it's taking your footnote today. um, You you probably just for calendar year companies, you just finished up 2022 um, while it's fresh, mm-hmm. go look at these rules and go map it just, you know, on the side, right? Go figure out what that would look like. And then from there, work backwards and say, what would I need in my system to be able to do this? Like, what does my system today produce? And if I'm using a third-party provider, like, how does that map in? Like my software system, mm-hmm. so is the software system 
built? Um, do I need to talk to my vendor about that? Is it built to track this information? Like today, your foreign tax effects are just rolling into a foreign foreign line. Um, but now it has to be disaggregated. So does your process allow that data to be captured and or what do you need to do to get to that place? So I think it's the same thing. And and while you think about your comment letter period, it's a great time to be thinking or looking at what that would look like. Um, it's not to say anybody imagines they don't have the data, but it is a matter of you don't want to imagine that it's easier to get mm-hmm. than it in fact is. So in fairness, companies need enough time. And today, companies are taking a look to see what that might look like. All right. So then obviously a lot to think about, especially again, in the context of all this other change that we're also seeing. So any other sort of final comments or advice for companies as they're thinking about the impact of this? I'd probably say two things. One is comment, Um, right? This is your opportunity to influence the direction of the project. Um, The FASB is looking for comments. And so, you know, whatever your, your, um, based on an evaluation of the impact it would have, good, bad, or indifferent, you know, think about what that might look like. Um, so so similar to your opening comment, I, I encourage companies to share their point of view. Um, but the other thing I think just goes back to, there is an awful lot going on. And while companies are integrating their teams together and trying to address like real operational things that are happening today as the economy continues to go through its dynamic, um, as you think about changes in tax laws that are still happening around the world and you think about Pillar 2 and the massive amount of changes that are expected in calendar 2023, there's you know much more to come. I mean, Japan is enacted, but there's much more to come yet this year. And then you think about this project. Again, you mentioned the timing of everything kind of coming together. So to me, I would just say, make sure that this is getting the attention during the window that you can influence it. And then that you're you're getting ready. Again, the FASB intends to, you know, what we understand is they intend to finalize the project this calendar year. So whatever the effective date of the standard is, it's not that far away no. in the scheme of things, right? right? So whether it's, you know, two years from now, it's still here. Um, and keep in mind, I say keep in mind, but I don't even think I said this. It's on a retrospective basis. That's important, actually. I, I don't think I mentioned that. So the proposal is to apply it on a retrospective basis, which you'd think would make sense because if you're looking at, you know, annual disclosures, then it's going to be a little bit weird if you're in apples and oranges mm-hmm. under old method versus new method. So with that, um, whenever it goes effective, even if it was effective in 2025, you're going to need 25, 24, 23, right? A lot easier for you to get that data yes. real time than it is to get it in 2025, let's say. So just as an example. So I'll, I'll throw that last bit in there with that. All right. Well, that's definitely a lot for, for people to think about. And definitely this is a project sounds like people do not want to look away because it's going to be moving quickly. So Jen, as always, such a pleasure to have you on. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. That's our show for today. Tune in next week for more fresh episodes so that you never miss any of our audio content. Follow the PwC Accounting Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. And to stay up to date on all our latest accounting and reporting news, sign up for our newsletter at viewpoint.pwc.com. From Thought Leadership at PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in.
This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates, and they sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.